Together with the Consumer Data Research Centre, or CDRC, Ellen is working towards better understanding cities and flows based on daytime consumption activities, rather than residential attributes. Ellen is also a data science freelancer. Before freelancing and her PhD, she completed a Master's in Geographical Data Science, where she used Python and R to handle large datasets. She's worked for Atkins as a project consultant role focused on the M62 and M25 smart motorway projects and their algorithms, and is one of the organisers of Our Ladies Northwest or Our Ladies Manchester? Manchester. Our Ladies Manchester. Um, anything we've missed? No. Awesome. Don't think so. Great. Um, so tell us more about your thesis and working with the CDRC, for example. Like, what is temporal geodemographic classification and why is the distinction between daytime consumption activities and residential attributes important? Okay, so other than being a bit of a mouthful, (laughs) temporal geodemographic classification is um, looking at people and their habits and their demographic by what they do during the day. So... The Consumer Data Research Centre, or CDRC, are the funding body behind my thesis, um, and it's part of Leeds, Liverpool, I think Manchester universities, they all work together under the CDRC, um, and in Liverpool we have access to a secure data facility where we can get access to big commercial data sets that wouldn't necessarily ordinarily be available to people in the outside world because of their sensitivity. So um, I have worked with a couple of big high street retailers and one of the uh, big six energy providers um, and they give their data to us because we can look at it from an academic perspective rather than a commercial perspective and and add value to it. So um, traditional classifications are the residential nighttime classifications. So more often than not, they're based on the census. So things like the output area classification and the indices of multiple deprivation. I think that's what people think of when you say a geodemographic. It's your demographic and it tells you about the small area where you live. Right. But the census is coming up for 10 years old. Um, so when's the next one due? It should be 2021, but with Parliament being the way it is, they've missed the census bill. No oh. bill means no census. Oh no. Um, but Parliament's Parliament's sitting again, so hopefully they'll get round to it because we could do with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I already feel feel like the 2011 census is 
feels too old to it me. is yeah. it is and that's why these residential nighttime statistics um i think they've they've sort of had their day a bit they're it's 10 years old, people change a lot faster than that, people move a lot faster than that, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. I know people my age move house every two or three years because they're quite transient and they're moving between big cities and taking jobs where they can find them. And yeah, especially in academia and tech. Exactly. Really quick turnaround. Yeah, and you know, immigration is completely different mm -hmm. to how it was in 2011. So, looking at those statistics probably doesn't give you the truest picture um but this up to the minute data that we can get from big companies through their loyalty cards or through their smart meters or whatever it's not about where you slept at night in 2011 <laughs> it's where you are today and how you're interacting with your space and your city and your friends and everything that goes with that. So I think there's a lot of value in this temporal classification to understand what time people are getting up and putting the kettle on, what time people are going doing their big food shopping a week. And it's got so many applications. If you, in a dream world, if you could get all these to talk to each other, it would be a bit big brother. But it would be amazing. You could, if you could automate everything, you could have a parking space at Tesco ready for you. You could access the cheapest energy tariff because your time of use tariff is cheaper because it's easier to get hold of and you don't have to store it and all that kind of thing. Could you so, optimise things like bus routes as well and how many buses, what yeah, route, at what time of day? Yeah, like. In Manchester, we've finally got Get Me There, which mm. is not quite up to Oyster standards, but it's getting there, and it, it should open up a lot more journey data. Right, so that's an app. So Get Me There is an app that... Get Me There is, is like a bespoke for Manchester version of Oyster. Okay. Um, I only know that because I was working at TFGM when they were bringing it in. but. If you can look at people's tap on, tap off sites, you can see travel to work journeys and you can, you can start to understand where people work. You know, you might see a lot of people getting off at some random stop in Oldham, but it's because there's a big industrial park mm -hmm. nearby. And that's the kind of thing that doesn't get picked up on when you're just looking at an overview of small areas and where people go to bed. Yeah, it's not... I mean, there's value in it, but it's not the whole picture at all. It's not no, like it's not. Information. The census is useful. The mm -hmm. census is really useful because it's the only national data set that we've got that you have to respond to. Mm -hmm. Everything else is optional and you can opt out and things like that. So it does have its use, but it's super costly to do, to implement, to, to clean, to put out there, to host, and it, it goes out of date really quickly. So that's why the temporal classifications are more important. Um, you mentioned Oyster just now. Mm. <laughs> I've been 
away from the UK for a while and I came back and I was like, oh, I'll get my Worcester card and everyone's using credit cards now. Yeah. So how do you feel about... Is Manchester already out of date with their Get Me There app? Or is, like, is there something that Oyster and Get Me There can do that the credit cards can't do to tap in and tap out of things? Um, I think... I think Oyster is a lot more um, advanced than Get Me There, but you can use contactless in Manchester now to tap in and tap out. Um, I think the benefit of having the Get Me There app is the um, discounted journey rates for season ticket holders and things like that. I think that's the main difference. In London, you get a daily limit, don't you, and it doesn't go above that, um, regardless of how you touch in, touch out. But in Manchester, I think you only get the season ticket discount if you use the app. Okay. So I think as far as like, as far as the information you can get from that, as far as people's journeys, mm. they both provide the same information. Yeah, I would assume okay. so. Okay. I would assume so. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's still a distinction between people who use the app to buy a ticket and then, for whatever reason, don't get on the tram or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I imagine it's very similar, but you have to physically be at the station to tap in on you. Yes, yeah. You have to go up to one of the little boxes and tap yourself in and out. But mm. Yeah, I think you can also download a Get Me There app to your phone and, and load up a ticket onto a card, which, oh. which means you can access a discount for a season ticket or whatever. But oh, it's changed a lot since I worked at TFGM, for sure, yeah. Mm. So what's your thesis on then? Energy data. Okay. Um, it started off, as you said, in the introduction, looking at consumer data as a whole, but quickly we realised that there was this really interesting data set available in the Secure Lab for an energy company's smart meter data, and it was too good not to use. Okay. And then further down the line, we, we were talking about, well, should we go off in which direction do you want to go, consumer data or energy data? And we found um, a government open data set that is all the energy performance certificates for domestic households. So when you buy or rent a house, you have to get an energy performance certificate to say how efficient it is. Um, and that data set's available completely openly. Um, and it gives you building level detail on buildings efficiency so single glazing immersion heaters whether it's the top floor of a flat um, and I got a bit more interested in fuel poverty and um, I wanted to I wanted to move away from the um, the sort of sales the aspect of data science like analysing consumer data to push marketing tools or right. to push ads or something like that. Um, I'm a geographer by trade, you know, my undergrad was in geography and human geography in particular, I don't do any Oxbow Lakes or anything, you know, I'm not into, I'm not into any of that. But I'm really interested in people and making a difference rather than selling them something. Right. So this aspects of fuel poverty was really interesting to me and there's a lot of literature about how smart meters can improve people's lives and decrease their energy bills or make their homes warmer because that's more affordable 
And I think the statistic is something like having a smart meter installed can improve your efficiency by 11%. That's a lot. It's a lot. And that 11% might be the difference between being in or out of fuel poverty for some mm -hmm. families. And I thought that was really interesting. So one of my chapters is just a real blanket, what on earth is in this smart meter data set? Because it's enormous, it's never been looked at before, it's so commercially sensitive that nobody's ever had access to it before because it's customer level data, one meter reading for every half an hour. So it, when I was like in my master's year, I just started learning to code and I got this data set that was like 14 gig and I was like, oh yeah. no. <laughs> that in memory. What <laughs> I let myself in for here. So, but we've ended up aggregating it to postcode sector level, which is like um, OL90. Oh. So quite small, but nowhere near small enough to identify an individual customer. Mm. You know, you couldn't go and wait on someone's street and say, whose light comes on at 7.30 in the morning? Yeah. Because I know that they're going to go out all day, so I can go rob them or right. whatever. You know, that's the kind of information I had access to. Mm. But I would obviously never utilise <laughs> it for that. Thank goodness. <laughs> but yeah, that crossover between what is fuel poverty, what can we do to improve it, and how can we use this new data to tell us more about where people are suffering or the reasons why they're suffering is the overarching mm. idea. There's no title yet, so don't ask me what my title <laughs> is because I'm not that... That's the hardest part. Not that far down the line. Yeah. But, yeah, I'd like my final chapter that I'm coming up to getting on with it's happening slowly but surely. I would really like to be able to feed back to the energy provider and say, if you target these areas mm. that find themselves in fuel poverty because they've got single glazed windows, immersion heaters, and all of the other characteristics that we pulled out of the energy performance certificate mm. data set, these characteristics mean people are in fuel poverty and these people with these characteristics live in XYZ. Right, so then you can start prioritising neighbourhoods. Exactly. Yeah. And then you can say, go to XYZ and offer them smart meters and that is where you will have the greatest social good. Mm. You've everybody's supposed to have one by twenty twenty anyway, according to government legislation. Really? Every domestic household should have been offered one by 20. Oh, offered, okay, that's different. Because yeah. I've been offered one. So, um, I don't know whether this is of interest generally. <laughs> but, but, um, Smart my, meters get people talking like yeah, every time oh I mention. <laughs> but I've been, so my energy provider is still bugging me to, mm -hmm. to get a smart meter, and I thought, do you know what, that sounds like a good idea. Mm -hmm. So I went through the whole like question thing on mm -hmm. their website, and then it says, Oh, what kind of gas meter do you have? Mm -hmm. And because of the kind of gas meter I have, they can't install yeah. a smart meter. Yep. So that's great. And then, but yeah. even, even after saying like, oh, I've got that, so I can't have it, they still every now and again say, do you want a smart meter? Yep. Um, no, no, not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and then you get the smart meter eventually, and you think, oh, God, they're charging me a fortune. I'll switch. 
So you switch and then your smart meter dies. Oh yes, because it uses different... Goes completely dead mm. because the technology isn't being rolled out for the ones that will switch between providers. It's yet. not like so standardised. No, between. so I had a smart meter and then I switched and I had to get another smart meter. No. And he turned up with the exact same kit. No. And he said, I've got to swap it. Oh. I've got to swap it. So all the hardware's the same, but the software's different. Yeah, oh it's ridiculous. Uh. <laughs> it's because what they've got their programs tariff like the tariffs are programmed in, and they're not clever enough yet to. They're not. That's they're not smart. smart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're really not. So yeah, but mm-hmm. if the day will come when <laughs> they are smart and they are mm-hmm. widely available and. Hopefully they, I mean, last week I was in the writing groove and I was typing away and I was like, yes, a hundred words today, yes, (laughs) tap, tap, tap. And then I had to stop myself and be like, I've just said that smart meters can save lives. I need to, I need to read it in, I need to take that out. I can't, I can't claim that just yet. That's what the drafting process is Exactly. (laughs) Can you define fuel poverty? Because I've never heard that before. I absolutely, yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I can. Fuel poverty is, um, it used to be where 10% of your income went on your energy bill. And now it's based on a low income, high cost indicator. So if you're, if you're low income by some government statistic and you're high cost by some government statistic, then you fall into the fuel poverty corner. But what I think is that that definition is far too narrow. That only targets people for help if they're low income and high cost. What if you're high income and high cost? Just because you earn a fortune doesn't mean that you don't also have three lots of school uniform to buy, two cars to run, and actually, you do have to leave the radiators off in a couple of rooms because you can't afford to heat your whole house. That's fuel poverty. That's, that's thermal discomfort. And it also doesn't take into account low-income, low-cost people. Just because their bills are tiny, because they live in a studio flat, doesn't mean they can afford it. They might have all sorts of other outgoings, or they might be on universal credit where their money's been stopped and they can't afford to top up their meter or whatever reason they can't afford it that week, they're in fuel poverty as well. The only people who aren't really at risk are high income, low cost. And they are the ones that reap the benefits because they're the ones that can afford to put a little bit of money away each month. They probably own their house. They're probably saving up for a more efficient boiler to bring the bills down anyway. They've probably invested in double blazing because they can absorb the shocks of a winter fuel bill because they've got enough disposable income. Most of the others will struggle if they get a shock bill or if they have to clear a debt in order to switch. And a lot of people are trapped in this perpetual cycle of fuel poverty because they either have a prepayment meter where they've fallen into debt because it's it's over winter and they're using more than they've topped up so they can't switch so they're on a very expensive tariff or 
you receive your first winter bill and you think, oh my God, I can't, I can't afford to pay this. So you might find yourself in fuel poverty for a month or two until your finances recover. So you, the definition is not wide enough by any means. And that's because it only really looks at income. And it's a lot more multifaceted than that. It's much bigger than that. And income is only a tiny part of it. So that's why I was looking at the energy performance certificate data and trying to understand what other factors create fuel poverty. Because then you can go away and say, actually, you need to target the people with single glazing, not the people on low incomes. So is it a political decision to change the definition? Yes, it was. The definition changed. <laughs> um, <laughs> you did ask. It's not something I... It's, I asked knowing the answer. <laughs> it's not something I feel really, you know, one way or the other about. I, I feel quite strongly that the new definition still doesn't go far enough. But is it better than the old definition? Yes, it's oh. better than the old definition because it now takes into account the amount of money that is absorbed by costs that you can't avoid, so your rent or mm. your mortgage. It takes that into account and the, the scale is based on an after housing costs income. So yeah, it, it, it has helped, but it's also, it's also changed the amount of people that are classified as fuel poor and the number went down massively when the definition changed and it just isn't true. Yeah. It just isn't true. And the other thing that comes into this is the fact, the thing about like means testing and everything like that, the, the Warm Homes Initiative for elderly people, retired people, everybody gets it. It's not, not means tested. Even if you're high income, low cost, never going to be fuel poor, you get a, a warm home allowance in winter. Right. I think Mick Jagger said that he spends it on a bottle of wine. <laughs> and I think Alan Sugar said that he gives it to charity for balance. <laughs> but there are people out there receiving it who just simply do not need it. Yeah. And there are young families mm. who could really, really do with that money. So the definition is very political and does not go far enough, in, okay. in my opinion. <laughs> So you said it was massive amounts of data mm -hmm. and a secure server. Yes. How do you deal with that? It was awful. It, it was <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It was absolutely horrendous. It was the way it had to be set up for the university and the commercial partners to agree to work to hand over this data. You had to go into the computer services department and go up through their offices into a back room through two key padlocked, you know, through two padlocked doors, enter your key, which I forgot every single time I went. And then you had to sit in a room with six computers with no internet access. And you had to give them a USB stick of stuff you wanted loading onto your computer. So I had to write all my code without ever having seen the data I'd seen the metadata and what the variables were, but I had no test data. I didn't know if my code worked until I got in there. 
There was no internet access, so if a function didn't work, I had to come out of the two doors, Google it on my phone, memorise it, <laughs> go back through the two doors, remembering my PIN, and by which time I've sat back down at the computer, I've thought so much about my PIN that I've forgotten the code. <laughs> and it took months. It took months. And to get anything out, it had to go through a a really long peer review process to make sure that you're not disclosing anything and it was it was awful wow and it was like the dead of winter cold miserable dark room with nobody for company no games on the computer you know <laughs> so i'm sat there waiting for 14 gigabytes of data to process on my own no radio i was on paint <laughs> just like making up pictures on paint because I had nothing to do. No books, not a reader. Uh, you're not allowed to take in a pen and paper. You're not allowed to take books in. You can't take your phone. No. Because if you jot down something, uh, I, could, I could scribble down, you know, oh, this person's out all day. Mm. I'm going to go round. Cathcart Associates is a technology recruitment company with offices in Leeds and Manchester covering all things tech, but with an experienced team focusing on data science in the Northwest. Cathcart are great at what they do and clearly understand the space they work in. Cathcart sponsor PyData Manchester, and without them, this podcast wouldn't be possible. They also run Manchester's largest machine learning meetup, Mancamel. Check out Cathcart in the show notes below. No pen, no paper, nothing. That does sound very difficult. Testing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Testing. Yeah, it was... I can completely appreciate why it had to be like that. Mm. But I think in future what they really, really need to do is a sample of 100 anonymised rows of data that I can test my code on before I have to go in because I wasted so much time on simple things like getting little code chunks, to how do I rename a column, how do I do that, you know, mm. things that you do time and time again, yeah. but you just Google them, you don't remember them. Yeah. yeah well, I, I had to, I had to, yeah. and it was awful, it was absolutely awful, and you'd go into this office of, it was like the administration staff for the university, and you'd go in and they'd look at you like, who? Who are you? What are you doing here? What is in that room? <laughs> wow, what is in the room? Secret room. And then you tell them, and they're like, oh, sounds great. <laughs> so you'd go in there, process the data, the data would be small enough then to fit on your USB. Yeah. And, and that was anonymised at that point. Yeah, and so it out and do. Yeah, so I aggregated the cu- customer level data up to a postcode sector level, which the commercial partner deemed to be non-disclosive and they allowed me to take that out of the secure lab and I've done the rest of my analysis on the aggregated data set not the customer level one Mm. which is frustrating now that I want to look at building level data with the (laughs) certificates but I'm not going back in the room (laughs) I'm not going back in the room it's like a terrible escape room honestly for hours it was awful uh, so was that, because you, you've done, in your past in Python and R, so what were you using for, for this wrangling? I do pretty much everything now in R. Um, 
my experience of Python was a tricky one. Um, I went and did this master's just, I'd never coded before, and I went and did a data science master's. And one of my first modules was a Python spatial analysis module. Okay. Um, and it was just so counterintuitive to anything I'd ever done. I was like, I'm going to have to go and ask my job back. This <laughs> I can't do this. I don't understand what I'm being shown. And it took a lot for it to click. And it was only when I started using the R Studio GUI mm -hmm. that it really clicked, that code really clicked for me. Being able to see a console and a script and an environment, that's when it clicked because I was using Jupyter Notebooks. And I just, I don't know whether it was the way the module was set up. There were three of us on the first intake of this master's. Okay. And it was the first year it had ever been done. So I think a lot of it was, we were the guinea pigs and it's so much better than it used to be. Mm -hmm. But now, well, previously, I just went back and helped out on that module and did some of the lab technician sort of teaching work. And that was like my annual refresher of Python. That's enough for me, thank you're, you. You're a manager, <laughs> you don't like it. Well, yeah. it's not that I don't like it, it's just that this is so similar to R that I I'm much more proficient in R, yeah. so I'll stick with it. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Good reason. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure if the need ever came I could go back to Python and pick yeah. it up. But what I really, really need is someone to sit down with me and give me a GUI. You know, yeah. I, I don't like the browser, Jupyter, I don't understand where things are kept, like no. where is it? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like how do you explore something? Exactly. Yeah, I think, yeah. so in, in my experience, I, I started in R mm. and then I moved in, over to Python. Um, <laughs> so, well, yeah, <laughs> and, and I think, because that was my first experience with, of a programming language and like computational thinking mm -hmm. or, or what, how you have to work with a computer to make it do what you want it yeah. to do. Um, so I found that that hurt me really hard, but then I, I found Python easier yeah. after that. So I think a lot of it is to do with um, just where you start and with yeah. instruction. And I wasn't given like a Python 101. Yeah. I was given master's level spatial analysis. Yeah, that's Python. not. <laughs> and I was like, Oh no, oh, oh dear, oh, I've yeah. made a mistake. <laughs> a view like this, they're very, very good, but they have a learning curve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. And, you know, it doesn't help that my, my secondary supervisor, Danny, is one of the um, developers on PySAL. Always. So he is, he is so deep into PySAL oh, yeah. <laughs> that he knows everything there is to know and I just needed high-level mm -hmm. stuff, right. not like this huge amount of back-end development speak. And I was just like, oh, please. It's yeah. really, really difficult to teach someone how to learn to program, no matter yes. kind of what you're doing. Because yeah. when you've been doing it for a few years, you forget yeah. how difficult it was. Yeah. <laughs> but that was why I loved going back and teaching this module, because mm. every year I'd be like, come on, please just stick with it. Yeah. Please yeah. stick with it. It's so good when you know what you're doing. Yeah. Sure. Please stick with it. 
And especially like the girls on that module, they look around and they just see this computer lab full of lads. Mm. And they look around like, this is no place for me. I don't know what I'm doing. Right. And just being able to be like, fuck, I was in your seat. <laughs> I was in your seat four years ago and look at me now. Yeah. <laughs> PhD. Exactly. Yeah. And they can't believe it when I say, I'm writing my whole thesis in, in R. Oh, you're doing the... Um, I, do, I do it all in Markdown. Right. So, just trust me, it's worth yeah. the learning curve. It's yeah. worth meeting the curve. And they sort of... Some of them believe me and some of them don't. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you lie? Um, yeah, I think uh, the, the art studio... Like, if you wanted to replicate that in, in Python, or that, like, kind of the, the, the GUI, the layout mm. of the page, uh, maybe Spider, S-P-Y-D-E-R, is, yeah. is the most... Or the one I'm most familiar with for Python, where you've got you know, your, your variables mm-hmm. in one side, you've got the um, like live coding yeah. section, and then you've got the, the script window. Um, you can sort of see how everything fits together. So I like working in Spider when mm-hmm. I've got certain things that I want to you know figure out yeah. in an interactive way. Yeah. Um, There's also JupyterLab, yeah. Lab, which is obviously still very similar to JupyterNotebooks, Notebooks. Yeah. But it's got the notebooks in one corner, and it's got graphs and interactive displays and yeah that's like the that. kind of thing I needed yeah so it's it's like so running it in the browser for two hours a week right. I just couldn't get a sense of yeah, yeah, yeah. It, how it's a strange place to start I've heard yeah. a lot of people complain yeah. about that yeah and I found it really intuitive when I was learning but right. that, that was me and I know a lot of people it doesn't work for yeah them. yeah and I think coming from a, a real like qualitative hmm. um, human Geography BA background, it was just so far removed from anything I'd ever done before, and yeah, it really was in at the deep end. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So you're currently writing your thesis. Yep. And data science freelancing. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So my funding, my PhD funding, runs out on Monday. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> funding runs out on Monday, so I need a real job. Um, I've decided that academia isn't for me. I won't be. I won't be staying in academia. Um, I think we can understand that. <laughs> yeah, um, it's just it's not the right environment for me. I don't think I want the variety of commercial life, and I want to get out and be back in a team and not working on a solo project for another three years it's not really what I want to do so yeah I've decided that while I sort of get my ducks in a row and I get everything organized I'm gonna just put the feelers out and do a bit of freelance and it's I mean so far so good I just I think I put I put a silly tweet out about doing some cosmic ordering and like just so everyone knows I'm available and now my diary's pretty much full till December so no way yeah so, Are you allowed to tell us anything about the projects or is um, it under wraps? I'm working with Lock Data, who I've worked with before. Um, she's another R Lady who I met through R Ladies. Everyone I'm working with, I met through R Ladies. Um, she's great. It's a real... She is very keen to be like, you'll learn stuff with this work. Have this. Awesome. So I'm working on some R package development for her. Um, and Recon, the epidemiology. They're a big consortium, a big, it's massive. 
um, and yeah, learning on the fly about package development for her. Um, I'm working with Honeycomb, who are a boutique data analytics, data science company in, based um, at the end of Canal Street. So, I'm we've sorry, we've been uh, looking up to have Bethan, who's the CEO yes. CEO of Honeycomb, on our Pydata Management panel a few months yes. ago. Yes. Yeah, she's really good. She's super focused and she, she's got a real vision about what she wants Honeycomb to be and it's a very exciting prospect to go in at the beginning of something mm -hmm. and really, you know, hopefully help to shape how it, how it grows. Um, yeah, Honeycomb are really cool, really enjoying working with them. They work with a lot of cool clients a lot of variety day to day um, and they're really keen to learn more about my spatial analysis which is something I really want to keep up, I really don't want to lose the geography as I get deeper into data science, I, I really want to bring it back to the mapping and yeah, visualising data in stuff and spatial yeah. data and it's often neglected. Mm. Everything's inherently spatial these days. Every card transaction is spatial. Mm. Whether you do that from your bedroom online or in a physical shop, or, you know, everything is spatial. And I think you can learn so much just by looking at where things happen. Um, and I think I, I'm really lucky to be in that sweet spot of geography and data science. So it's exciting and there's Thankfully, there's not a lot of people who do spatial data analysis. Yeah. So it's a real it's a real niche, and I'm really excited to see if I can carve that out for myself and see where it takes me. So yeah, but then who knows? I might love the package development and feel like right. Well, I'm off to be a software developer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it might just be another string to my bow. I don't know. So we'll see. Yeah, that's a great thing about this kind of work is it can be pretty flexible exactly um, you can change and that's fine and that's really what I wanted I wanted the flexibility you know my PhD is not finished let's not <laughs> pretend <laughs> let's not pretend it's nowhere near finished and this freelancing if I can if I can book four days a week as an absolute dream if I can book four days a week that still gives me a day to work on my PhD in my own time and still give myself my evenings and weekends, which I think is really important. You know, I think I think there's a lot to be said for a life-work balance rather than a work-life balance. So I'm really I've got used to being on my own time and I'm a I'm a bit of a law unto myself about when I work and I, I love that. You know, if I can take the dog out for two hours every day, yeah, I will. <laughs> John can definitely relate to that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I need to. I appreciate a lot of structure <laughs> to my day. No. Um, <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, I end up doing lots of other yeah. things. No, I know when I work best, and I and I know that I need an hour in the middle of the day to just go outside and be oh, yeah. outside. And I think that is the physical geographer in me. <laughs> you know, I need to go outside for some time every day. Yeah. <laughs> and the dog insists. So. <laughs> Good, making sure that you, you get your fresh air. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. Whatever the weather. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned Our Ladies. Yeah. How long have you, you're an organiser, right? I am. So how long have you been doing that? 
So I took over from Kaylee, who I think you've had on the podcast. She's amazing. Yes. I took up, me and Bethan took over from Kaylee together um, when she got promoted at peak. Um, and she just had too much on her plate. And I was running Our Ladies Liverpool, which is sadly now defunct. Um, but I moved house, I moved back to Manchester, and it just didn't make sense for me to be organising events somewhere I didn't live. Right. Um, and I found there wasn't a lot of appetite for it in Liverpool. Really? So, yeah, I think because I was running it from an academic perspective out of a university building, a lot of academics want a lunchtime meetup. Oh. And a lot of commercial people want an evening networking, True. bits of nibbles, couple of drinks, mm-hmm. and there's no academic sponsorship for that. <laughs> and in Liverpool, there, there's not really a lot of companies who want wanted to get involved. There's a lot of maritime companies who just aren't that bothered, very old-fashioned. There's a couple, so Shop Direct are a big employer in Liverpool, but they're way out in Speak, they're not city centre. And it was just really hard to get anything going. So I tried to hand it over to someone and she's ended up a lot busier than she thought she was going to be. Um, she's just started a postdoc, so obviously she's yeah. mad busy. Um, so I think it, it's back on the back burner, sadly, but Manchester's absolutely thriving. We, yeah. I think anybody who wanted to come from Liverpool would make the 45-minute journey down to see us once, once every two months. Um, yeah, me, me and Bethan have organised the last two, soon to be three. We've got one coming up. Um, and we've already sort of started thinking about, dare I say the word, Christmas. Oh, yeah. Really? yeah, we've already started thinking about what we're going to do around Christmas time because we're every two months, so it falls October and December. Oh. Um, yeah, so we've started thinking about that. We're thinking about some sort of R-based quiz, I think. <laughs> Hadley or no Hadley was one suggestion we oh. had last time. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's going really well. We're getting such good feedback and such nice people coming and People are keen to speak and there's no sort of awkward silence and you know, people will ask questions and they will get involved and they're quite happy to mingle and I think the more people come back the more friends you make. Yeah. More than anything. So yeah, it's going really well. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And we've got stickers. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've seen those. I have one of those. Um Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Proud of me to play on my laptop. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. Um, yeah. So what? So you mentioned you got an, an event in October. We have. Yep. October the first. Um, we've got one speaker booked this time. Um, our first event we booked three, and we talked so much we had to bump one back. Oh. And she was very gracious about it, oh. and she. Um, yeah, she was very gracious, and she agreed to come back the next time. Lovely. And then last time we had two speakers, and we still did too much talking. So this time we're having one speaker and a discussion. Nice. <laughs> we're going to get all the talking out of the way, um, and obviously we're going to introduce Hacktoberfest. Mm. And we are yeah, we're just going to have a bit more of a chat this time, more than anything. We want to get some a bit of roundtable stuff in and. 
We're looking to get some mentors paired up with people who want to be mentored, so start making those connections and just, yeah, get people moving around and talking and swapping tables and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, sounds really good. Yes. Sounds yeah. really busy, you're alone. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it is quite busy, but it's all in good hands, I think. <laughs> we'll find yes. out. Um, awesome. So, our last question yes. we asked everyone, who do you admire from the tech community? That can be in Manchester or, or wherever. Okay. Um, Hannah Fry, I think she is wonderful. I just think she is, she's clearly so, so intelligent, but she's also so accessible. And she's, she's so friendly about everything that she teaches. I've just listened to her latest podcast series from DeepMind and it's amazing. It's so relevant and just up to the minute, interesting, really relatable to everyday life. Um, she wrote a book called Hello World last year and it's spot on. It's just full of like those facts that you need when there's a bit of a lull at the Christmas dinner table. <laughs> it's one of those that you can just bring out, did you know? Did you know this? Did you know that? And I just think for laymans who are data scientists, who are just everyday people who are starting to join the dots between, actually, Google does know this about me. Actually, Facebook are targeting ads at me. Why am I seeing this? Why is this happening? I think she just she makes it so simple and so accessible, but in in a really detailed way. She doesn't skirt around the tricky stuff. She tells you about it, mm. but she makes sure that you know what's going on. And I think yeah, I think she's I think she's fascinating and eloquent and lovely and yeah, really she seems very approachable with everything and she liked one of my tweets once <laughs> that's amazing mm -hmm. I know. yeah <laughs> you're basically famous mm -hmm. yeah oh my gosh so yeah, yeah. hannah fry yeah she's a mathematician yes she is google DeepMind. yes and i think she's also at ucl mm, but, okay um i think she's been at DeepMind for the last 12 months i don't know if it's a collaboration or whether she's got working for them but mm. i know that she also just had a baby as well so she's probably Mixing it up. Mixing it up a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Anyone else? No, just Hannah Fry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just love her. That's brilliant. Yeah, good. Good. Well, thanks so much, Alan, for being an excellent guest. You're welcome. Um, so interesting. Um, and thank you to our hosts for today. We're recording at Lad Bible Group here in the Northern Quarter. Um, and also thank you to Numfocus, who sponsored that area. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Very nice. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>